Well, let's ask God to speak to us through this part of the Bible. Father, this is a part of the Bible that we may be familiar with, a part of the Bible that we may have heard preached before many times and read many times before. And Lord, tonight we actually don't want you to say anything new to us. We simply want you to remind us of the simple truth that's found in this part of Scripture. Lord, tonight help us to recognize that we're just like David, that we're sinners in need of a Savior, and Lord, remind us tonight that you're the one who saves and forgives. Lord, this is going to be a challenging passage in some ways, but Lord, give us joy in Christ, we pray tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you, there's a little handout, and uh, on the back is the outline of this talk, and that'll hopefully help you as you, as you go along tonight. Um, I wonder, can you relate to the statement, the first statement that's written on this handout? You know what is right, head knowledge, you know what's right, you desire to do what is right in your heart, but yet you fail to do what's right. Can you relate to that? You know what's right in your head. You really want to do what's right. You have that heart's desire to do what is right. And yet in your everyday life, when it comes to the rubber hitting the road, you fail to do what is right. This is the experience of everybody. It's the experience of people out there who don't know Christ, and it's the experience of us in here who do. And why is that? Why do we struggle with that? Why is that a tension in our lives? Why do we know what's right, desire what's right, but fail to do what's right? Well, the simple answer is that we're sinners. We have got the disease of sin. We have inherited from the first man, Adam, and each of us are born with a, dis a way of going against God. It's inbuilt. It's part of our nature, our fallen state. In each of us, there is a, a heart that is bent to rebel against God and go our way and not his way. And tonight what we see is that David was just like us. He was a man who, who knew what was right, wasn't he? He was a man who knew the Scriptures. When he was the king, what part of the, the thing that had to happen whenever someone became king was that they had to read through God's law. David was a man who knew God's law. He knew what was right. He knew what God required of him. He knew what God required of the people. And actually, David was doing a good job of trying to bring Israel under God's rule. He knew what was right. And David, he, he desired to do what was right. He desired to live God's way. He was a man after God's own heart. He wanted to follow God and please God. Do you remember he even wanted to build God a temple? He loved God so much. And God said, no, that's not your job. He, he had a desire to do what's right. And yet tonight, what we see is that even though know, he knew what was right and desired to do what's right, he failed to do what was right. We're told in verses 1 to 5 of his failure. In the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, last week we found out that there was peace in Israel and that all of God's enemies had been kind of quashed and it was a time of peace. If you're wondering why they're out to fight again, if you read 2 Samuel chapter 10 at home, you'll find the reason why they're out to battle against the Ammonites. But anyway, David, he sends his men out to fight 
And the passage says it's the time when kings were meant to go out, but yet David didn't go. He stayed in Jerusalem. Then in verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to your house. See what's happened here? First thing that happened is that David is in a place of relaxation. He should be out fighting on the front line with his men, but David, for some reason, has decided to stay behind in Jerusalem. And it doesn't seem he's particularly busy because it's the late afternoon, it's not bedtime, and David has been lying on his couch. He's been sitting in his living room, he's been lying there chilling out, he's relaxing. He's at ease in Zion, literally. He's relaxed. And then, you know, what's he going to do with himself? Well, he gets up and he, he goes for a wee walk on his roof. Now, that sounds a bit weird, our roofs are so pointy, but roofs in the Middle East are flat. They don't have as much rain as we do. And so he's up on his roof and he's having a little stool, but, but he's relaxed. And then he sees a woman, but he doesn't just see a woman, he looks at her. Have a look at the text again. Look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when the king arose from his couch and was walking on the king's house that he saw a woman from the roof a woman bathing. So he's kind of looking out and he's just looking around and he notices a woman bathing. Now you're thinking, what on earth is a woman having a bath on a roof for? Um, what you need to understand is that that was the most private place a person could possibly have a bath. Um, you, you know, imagine like a one-bed house. That's what people lived in. Uh, and you could either go down to the village and bathe, or if you were going to bathe at home, you'd bring the water up onto the roof and you'd bathe. And it wasn't lying in a bath. It would be pouring water over, kind of having a shower with a big jug. But this was a, a private place to bathe. This was a private place to get washed. But it just so happened that from there where the king's house was, well, well, he noticed her. But he didn't just kind of see her and then kind of, oh, better get inside here. Oh, you know, he, he didn't just see her. He then looked at her. He stared. He let his eyes stay upon her. And, and you see that because look what it says next. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. He admired her. He, he looked at her. Interesting. Then next what happens is he objectifies her. He, he turns her into an object. It's interesting, isn't it? That's the only word that's used to describe Bathsheba in the passage. She was beautiful. Outward appearance was all that mattered to him. She, she looked beautiful. That was all he was interested in. He, he turned her into an object to gaze at and admire, and as we're going to see, an object to pursue and get and use for his own pleasure. Did he consider her personality? Was he interested in her character? Was he interested in any of that stuff? No, she was just an object to him. He objectified her. So he was relaxing, walking, sees her, looks at her, objectifies her, 
And then he inquires about her. He asks some questions to find out about her. Verse 3, And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David, here's what you need to know about that woman. She's someone's daughter, and she's someone's wife. That's all you need to know, David. She's someone's daughter, and she's someone's wife. What should David have done here? Whenever that information came back, a man who knows what is right, what should he have done? He should have went and had a cold shower or something. He should have went back into the living room and played the Xbox and did something else. He, he should have left the roof and, and just gone about his business. Anything else other than what he did next. Because what he did next was horrible. He had her brought to him. Oh, she's someone's daughter. She's someone's wife. I don't care. I'm the king. Go and get her for me. Verse 4, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. And then what did he do? He lay with her. I want you to imagine you're in Bathsheba's shoes here. You, you've been taken from your house to the king's house. You're brought into the palace. You have no idea what's going on. Your husband is in a foreign country. And the king makes an advance on you. What was she meant to do? Do you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of Hollywood producers who brought young women to their homes throughout the past number of decades. And basically said, if you don't sleep with me, you're never going to get a part. You won't be in any of the films. I hold the cards. I hold the power. No, you have a choice. But if you don't, don't expect a career in Hollywood. And this is the position that Bathsheba is being put into. He is the most powerful man in Israel. What he says goes. He can do whatever he likes. He holds the power. And she's brought before him. And he lay with her. And it's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't say that she lay with him. It doesn't say they lay together. It says, and he lay with her. He's basically forced himself upon this woman. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, this is King David. We, we don't like to think of him like this. We like to think that this is just some sort of adultery. For some reason, that seems a lot better than, than what this is. But yet, this is the picture that the text is painting. And then having slept with her, see what he does? He disposes of her. She's met his needs. 
peace. Had his desire fulfilled, and he disposes of her. He sends her back home. He doesn't keep her in the palace. He's no intention of having a, a relationship with her, a monogamous relationship with her. He, he's just simply interested in getting from her what he wants. And then he disposes of her. And if you have a look at the text, you see that. Then she returned to her house. Just as she'd, he'd brought him to her, then he sent her away. And my guess is that David was hoping just to forget about this whole thing. You know, maybe it was just a blip. Maybe he sat down after, you know, you know, I've made a mess of things, but it's just a blip. Let's just forget about this. I imagine that's how he felt. I just want to forget about this. I've, you know, I, I don't like what I've done here, and I just want to forget about it. He's engaged in sin, and then I think he's wanted to forget about it. But he's not allowed because the news comes. Have a look at verse 5. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. I'm pregnant. David is not going to be able to forget about this sin. There is a consequence to it. There is a repercussion to it. Sin has affected Bathsheba, and now there's a child on the way. And here David has a choice to make, and the choice is very, very simple. And folks, this is a choice that you and I have to make every single time that we become aware of our sin. Every time that we sin, we have this same choice to make, especially whenever we sin in a big way especially when we really blow it, especially when other people see, whenever you really blow it, you have this same choice that David has. And the choice is between two things. One is you can confess your sin. You can own it. You can say, I made a complete mess of that. I'm so disappointed with myself. I, I, I know I shouldn't have done it, and I've done it, and it's terrible. You can own it and you confess it to God and you can bring it to him and say, Lord, you know that I've blown it. You know I've made a mess of it. That's one option. The other option is another C. You can conceal it. You can cover it. You try and hide it. And there's lots of ways that we can cover sin. We can justify it. Like, I only did that because X or Y. Or we can say things and say, look, I was, I was only joking, you know? It wasn't serious when I called you that. Starting to justify it and covering it and hiding it. And that's exactly what David's trying to do here. He's trying to cover up his sin. And, and the way that he thinks he's going to be able to do this, he comes up with this scheme. Okay, I've got Bathsheba pregnant. This is a nightmare. How am I going to cover my tracks here? I know what I'm going to do. I'll get Uriah back from the battle lines, and I'll, I'll bring him back. I don't know. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring him back, and I'll ask him to give me a military report. I'll pretend that, that he's the man I want to hear from from the front line. Yes, I'll bring him back here. He'll give me the military report. Then I'll send him down to Bathsheba, and then he'll sleep with her, and then Uriah will think the baby's his, and so will everybody else. What a brilliant plan. I'm so clever. 
I'm an expert at this sin-covering business. And so he does just that. He, He sends for Uriah. And Uriah comes back, and David starts asking him about the war. He asks for, for the battle uh, summary. So he comes down, and uh, he asks him the questions. And then he says to Uriah, okay, Uriah, go down to your house. But look at verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. He's brought Uriah back. He's got the battle report, and he says, okay, Uriah, you got a bit of time off. Away on home there. And Uriah doesn't go home. Why not? Because Uriah thinks of his friends and his compadres out on the battlefront, sleeping in tents. He says, it's not right for me. It's not right for me to to be relaxing while they're out there. It's ironic, isn't it? Because that's what David was doing. That's day one of Uriah being back in it. And David's plan hasn't worked. So David says, well, listen, stay another day. Stay another night. You know, it's okay. There's no need to rush back. And this night, David comes up with an even better plan. I know what I'll do. I'll get him drunk. I'll get him drunk. Because if I get him drunk, then he'll go to his wife. Then he'll go home. Once he's out of his mind, he'll dander on down the street. And he'll go home then. And so he throws this big party, we're told. And he gives him wine. And uh, he, he, he drinks it up, and, and Uriah, we're told, is drunk. Verse 13, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence, and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Even inebriated, this man would not go down to his house and relax when his friends were at war. It actually tells you something about this man's character, doesn't it? It tells you that this man was faithful to David. Faithful, actually, to God and to his battles. Faithful to his his companions. Uriah comes across as a very noble, noble man. David's plan hasn't worked. And so what happens next is having not been able to cover a sin... What we see is a spiral, a downward spiral of things getting worse. We see David's sin of sleeping with Bathsheba, leaving to this sin of covering rather than confessing. And then what we're going to see, and it's just so awful, it's hideous, it's horrible. This downward spiral where David has Uriah killed. And even the way he does it, it's just horrible because he sends the letter with Uriah, the letter outlining the plan to have him killed. Look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He writes this letter to Joab and he sends it with you. Hey, Uriah, before you go back, just take this wee letter with you, would you? And when you get to the battlefield, just give it to Joab. Don't open it. It's not for you. But whenever you get from here to the battlefield, give it to Joab. And so Uriah is clutching this letter. And look at verse 15, what was written in it. Send Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Job, I want you to send him out where the enemy are pressing the most. Wherever they've got their machine guns, 
That's where I want you to send them. And I want you all to be with him, but then I just want you to, to fall right back so that he's on his own. And you know what will happen, don't you? They'll, they'll come and they'll get him. And they'll cut him to pieces with their swords. But make sure that happens, Joab. Do you see even what David's got someone else now involved in? He's got someone else involved in this. This downward spiral is just horrible, and he's now involving Joab. And again, you know, you can't actually read Joab and think, oh, Joab shouldn't have done that. Joab was under the king's orders. Joab had no choice. He had to do it. And so he did. And Uriah the Hittite died. And then what does David do? Well, it's interesting because I guess on first appearances, what he does next, well, you know, it could seem very, very noble. It could seem noble to the people of the, the city of Jerusalem. Look what he does next. Look at verse, uh, it, it's just after verse 17. Um, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. So she's heartbroken. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But you see what he did? So, so here's this woman, and she's grieving over her husband. And all of Jerusalem know about Uriah. They know his heroics. They know how he died in battle. And they now know that Bathsheba is grieving over him. And then after the time of mourning is over, do you see David the hero rising up? David the king has taken pity on this poor widow. Oh, what a fantastic king we have. He, he brought her into the palace and he married her. They had a big royal wedding. Isn't our king brilliant? Look at him. Look how he's taking pity on that woman and taking care of her. That's the appearance to everyone, isn't it? But what David was doing here it wasn't noble. He wasn't doing it to be nice to Bathsheba. Again, it was just all part of the plan to cover his sin. You see, if he could marry her as quickly as possible, then whenever this baby came in eight months rather than nine, this little premature baby had been born, but it was their baby. In the eyes of everything, he's still done nothing wrong. In the eyes of everyone, he still looks perfect and sinless and guiltless. No one is going to know a thing about this. It's a sham marriage. And David sits, and he thinks he's got away with it. Nobody knows. Nobody knows the things I've done. Nobody thinks less of me. Nobody has any idea about what has just paid out. It doesn't say he's on his couch relaxing again, but I imagine he might have been almost smiling that he's got away with all of this. But he hadn't got away with it because there was one who saw everything. There was one who saw everything. The all-seeing God. And so what does God do? God sends along Nathan. Nathan was a prophet in Israel at this time, someone who spoke God's message to God's people. And God sends Nathan along to David. 
And he's very clever, Nathan, because what he does is he, he comes to David, I guess, the judge, the one who's so wise, and he presents a case from the kingdom to David. He's wanting David to rule here. He's wanting David to make a judgment about two men, a rich man with lots of herds and this poor man with one little ewe lamb. And so he tells David this story. He says, David, he says, there's two men in your kingdom. One of them is rich. He's got lots of flocks and lots of herds. And there was another man, his neighbor, and he only just had one wee ewe lamb, this wee innocent lamb. And the rich man, he had some friends come to stay. And instead of killing any of his own lambs, he took the wee ewe lamb and he slaughtered it. What should, what should we do here, David? The man must die, says David. What he's done is so bad, he must die. And there must be retribution. And then Nathan it's like the whole time he was telling that story, he was pulling his fist back here. Because when David says he must die, and then Nathan hits the knockout blow, you're the man, David. You're the man. You're the man I'm talking about. You're the one who's done it. You took Uriah's one lamb. This innocent woman, you took her and you violated her. And what you've done is not pleasing in God's sight. Do you see what Nathan does? He exposes David's sin. He exposes it to him and he says, God knows about your sin. And then what Nathan does next is he tells David the consequences of his sin. He, he tells David what is going to happen because of his sin. And, and what happens because of his sin, whenever we read it with our Western eyes in the year 2020, we, we struggle with this. But yet this is the consequence of his sin. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. David, because of your sin, because of what you've done, you see this baby that's going to be born? This innocent son of yours? That baby's going to die. Because of your sin, the innocent son is going to die. We're horrified by that a little bit, aren't we? But yet, do you see what this is pointing to? It's pointing to our sin and another innocent son. Because of our sin, the innocent son of God had to die. Because of our sin, the one who knew no sin had to die on a cross, this horrible, brutal death, so that we could be forgiven. This points us to the cross. And if you're horrified by this, are you horrified by your sin and what had to happen to the Son of God? Because that's what it's supposed to evoke. Anyway, there, there's these consequences to a sin. The, 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 the Son has to die. And like our sin, the Son has to die. And then what does David do? Well, he confesses his sin. He owns it. 
It's the first time in the whole thing he owns his sin. He finally puts his hands up and he says, yes, I've sinned before God. I am the man. I've done that. He confesses his sin. And then he seeks forgiveness. And then he's forgiven. Uh, And you read his response in that psalm. In light of his sin, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. O God, will you clean me from my sin? I recognize it. Verse 4, And against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David finally owns his sin. He finally confesses his sin. He throws himself wholly upon the mercy of God. And God, in his great mercy and his great grace, forgives him. This is a pretty challenging story. And it's challenging because it's true. And it's challenging because it gets to us. Because we recognize ourselves in David. But tonight I just want to finish with a few things of application. Um, We are in a better position than David, and that's the first thing I want you to know. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ has sent his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit now dwells in you. And what Romans 6 says is that, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under the law but under grace. Though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that is now claimed at your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And what Romans 6, I'll try and summarize it very quickly, what it's trying to say is that without Christ, without that forgiveness, without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it's like we were slaves to sin. We had one master and that was sin. And he was our ruler, and we followed him and lived for him, and that was all we could do. But then Christ saved us, and his Spirit filled us, and we have a new master now, and that master is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've moved from having to obey sin and do what sin wants to now being free from sin. You're no longer my master to live for Jesus. We now have the right and the ability to say no to sin and live for Christ. Now, don't get me wrong, sin is still there. And sin is still trying to act like our master. We know what's right, we desire what's right, but yet we do wrong because sin tempts us. And sometimes we obey him. But folks, what I want you to know tonight is that sin is no longer your master. You're no longer enslaved to sin's power, but you're free to obey Christ. You're not always going to get it right. You're not always going to do that. You will give in to sin at times. Of course you will. We all do. But know that you're free, free from sin's mastery. The second thing I want you to realize tonight is that we as Christians always have in a way to escape. David had a way to escape, didn't he? 
He saw the woman. He could have escaped right then by not looking at her. Then he looked at her and he could have had an escape route by going and getting a cold shower. Then he heard about her and he heard that she was someone's daughter and someone's wife. And he could have escaped then by doing nothing about it. Then she was brought to him and he could have escaped by saying, listen, I'm sorry, go home. So many times he had an ability to escape. So many times God opened doors and said, David, run out here, flee. But he didn't. And folks, what the Bible tells us is that whenever we're tempted to sin, God provides a way of escape. Have a look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul writes, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. That first thing is reassuring. Whatever you're tempted with, it's not uncommon. Other people are tempted with the same things. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Folks, you see this week when you're tempted, look for the open door. This week, whenever the old master of sin is telling you to follow him and do what he wants, look for the door that God opens for you to get out. And take that door and run out that door as fast as you can. Because sin will damage you and hurt you and destroy you and wreck your relationship with God. And then the last thing, and this I hope is reassuring. There's no sin so small that it doesn't require forgiveness. We know that all sin is against God. But equally, there's no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven. Listen. There is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven. There is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven. Jesus has done enough to forgive the worst sin. Maybe you're here tonight and you carry sin with you from your past. Maybe you're here tonight and you trust Jesus as your forgiver and, and you're a follower of him and you trust him, but you live with a guilt, believing somehow that sin you've committed in the past, awful sin cannot be forgiven. That maybe Christ has forgiven all of your sins since trusting him, but that stuff from back then, no, he couldn't possibly forgive that. That is a lie of the devil. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Christ is a great Savior. Christ is a forgiving Savior. Christ is a sufficient Savior. And tonight, if you're weighed down with guilt and shame and sin, give it to him tonight. Trust him tonight. And know that happiness that David talks about. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is he whom the Lord does not count his iniquity against him. Let's pray together.
Father, it is never comfortable to talk about sin. It's never comfortable to think about our own sin. It's never comfortable to think that we are sinners and to really recognize that. But Lord, what is so comforting is knowing that Christ died for our sins and that he is a sufficient Savior who can forgive so, so much and everything that we thought or said or done that you hate. Lord, thank you that when we put our trust in Christ, that as far as the east is from the west, so far you've removed our transgressions from us. Lord, may that delight us tonight, may that bring us joy tomorrow, and may that bring us security and comfort for the future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What I love about what happens next is that God doesn't leave David. God doesn't disown him, but instead God walks with him through the rest of his life. Uh, and David, later on in life, he, he writes this song about God that we know very well, and we're going to sing it, Psalm 23. Even after his sin, even after his mistakes, even after all he's gone through, even after this total disaster, he was reconciled to God and knew God with him through the rest of his days. So let's stand together and sing, The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want.